I titled the message this morning, The Presence of God Cannot Be Manhandled. And I, I'll tell you, uh, Ron Bircham is awesome. Men's group has just been great, guys. If you want to come out, Monday nights at 7 in the great room. And Ron puts out an uh, encouragement every morning. And, and something leaped out at me this week, and I was looking at one of the Bill Johnson quotes and just looking at the whole presence of God in the ark. And if you look about all that we're doing, we are, um, we're, we're in a lot of places. We're going to be at the tent, the mall, we outreaches to, to the different cities and states. And it's just part of the going. But if we go and we go in the presence of human flesh, I don't care how much hype or how much we put in it. One, it can be very dangerous. I'm going to share with you that can be really dangerous. But secondly, it can also just be a whole lot of flesh. That just wears you out. So I think it's timely. Um, I'm asking the Lord to reveal this truth. Last week I shared on conditions. You know, when is your fruit ripe? And it was the testimony or the, actually the parable that Jesus shared in uh, Mark 11 where he curses the fig tree. And it wasn't the season for the figs. And then Peter and the boys noticed the next day that it's dried up at the root. And Jesus then shares in Mark 11 these principles. He doesn't go by formulas, but he goes by what I'll call principles of the truth, that if you want to have something move a mountain, if you want the mountain mover to move stuff out of its way, then here's some of the conditions God looks to. Prayer and forgiveness and prayer in his name, seeking his face. And so I want to pick up on that. That's that whole presence of um, moving in the seasons of God, always being in season and moving in faith. This one, this next building upon the, the uh, foundation here is the presence of God. I mean, you think about all that took place this morning. You could feel the presence. When people walk in, I remember the first time I walked in here years ago, and I could feel the presence. It was all this going on, all this motion in the ocean and flags and what in the world? We don't do that. And yet the presence... And so we're after the presence. So let's try to understand what is it that attracts the presence of God? What stops the presence of God? What brings destruction in the presence of God? So let's turn this morning and get right into it. Why don't you turn with me? Let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. In 1 Chronicles in chapter 13, we'll give you some context of where we are in the Scriptures David has just become king over the entire kingdom. He'd been the king over Judah for about seven years. Saul, remember Saul, tried to kill David multiple times. Saul had no real inkling for the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines almost 30 years earlier. The the Philistines took the presence of God. We'll, we'll look at one of the scriptures there. It says, the glory of God has left Israel. Now, that is a frightening thought, right? That the glory of God lifts. And so the presence at that time was in the ark of the, of the presence, the ark of the covenant, and the enemy captures it. And they go, now, we've got God, right? The first thing they do is they roll the presence, the ark of God, into their idol worship temple to Dagon who is this creature that they fashioned out of stone. The first night, Dagon falls down on his face and worships the ark. Now, that'll preach right there, right? 
The next, so they set it back up again and said, oh, what happened here? Let's fix this. The next day, Dagon falls on his face again, breaks his hand and his head. They said, you know what? This is not working. We got to get this presence out of here. <laughs> it's messing up our idols. And that'll preach. So there's something about the presence. So let's look in this context. David now becomes king. Saul has died. He says, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul my king. And he raises up the shepherd boy, and David now becomes king, and he rules for 40 years. The first thing he does, a man after God's heart, says, we need to get the ark of the presence. We need the presence to come back now that I'm king. And so what does he do? We pick up in, in 1 Chronicles 13. David consulted with his officials, verse 1, including the generals and the captains of his army. He addressed the entire assembly of Israel as follows. If you approve... And if it will be the Lord God, let us send messages throughout Israel to the, to the land, including the priests and the Levites in their towns and the pasture lands. Let us invite them to come and join us. It's time to bring the ark of God, for we have neglected it from the reign of Saul. I want you to see, they've been on a war footing for years David and his mighty men, the army is over a million men strong. He has conquered the enemies, but his consulting, you'll notice he sends for the priesthood outside in the land. I don't believe they were part of this council that he had consulted in his officials. But he says, now it's time to bring back the ark. The whole assembly agreed. They could see that it was the right thing. And I want you to see that the, God, the, the word of God, I believe, has at least... Three elements that if you get any one of these elements out of order, it can be really destructive or at least hold back what God wants to do. The first is the word. David says, should we, I feel like we're supposed to bring the ark back, the presence back, and I think it's now. And he consults with his hierarchy and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem is they didn't ask him how. What is the strategy for bringing the presence back? And unfortunately, they didn't know the word sufficiently to understand there is a, pre a, a premise by which God moves the presence of the ark. We'll look at that. that. That'll preach. You need to know what is the word, what is the timing, and what is the strategy. Here's an example. Remember when Abraham was told, you're going to be the father of, of, the, of many nations. He said, wow, that's awesome. And then he says, you're going to be that father so 25 years later, he still doesn't have an offspring, and he's old, and his wife is old. There's no interface with God, at least mentioned in Scripture, that Abraham went and said, so, uh, Father, you said I was going to be, and how do you want to do this? So then what happens? His wife, Sarah, says, look, I'm getting old. Why don't you sleep with my handmaiden? That was not the will of God. And so what happens? He got... The word right, you're going to be the father of many nations. He got the timing all messed up, didn't know when, got frustrated after 25 years. So he said, well, I'll just put some human flesh in this thing. Sleep with the handmaiden. And now we have Hagar pregnant with Ishmael, and we're still having issues with that today. And so when we see that timing, that's really important for us to understand the timing. That's the who, the what, the when, the directional. We may not understand the why right away. So let's pick up in the story. So David has decided it's time to bring the ark back. And if you look at the rest of that chapter, 
Here they are, they're all excited, all the hype, all the, everybody in all of Israel, it's time to bring the ark. You pick up in verse 8, David and all Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Here's the hype, here's the direct, their hearts are in that place of celebration with all their might, singing songs, playing all sorts of instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, tambourines, cymbals, trumpets. But when they arrived at the threshing floor, that's interesting, that's the place where you separate that which is the good wheat from that which is not part of the wheat. It's in the threshing, and it's in that place where everything gets stirred up. It's at the threshing floor. The oxen stumbles, and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. Again, a good purpose, a good plan. Don't let the ark fall. And the Lord's anger was roused against Uzzah and struck him dead because he laid his hand on the ark. So Uzzah died there in the presence of God. Now, wait a minute. Good motive? The timing? Don't let the ark stumble, and now you kill one of the men? God. David says, David obviously was confused. It says David was angry. David was, verse 11, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. And he named the place Perez Uzzah, which means burst out against Uzzah. David was now afraid of God. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God back into care? David did not move the ark from the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of God remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom everything that he owned. So when we pick up here, we see this, that certainly David is now confused. What about David's enemies? What about David's congregation and his men? Oh, so you think you heard God? Then why is Uzzah dead? David had to get alone with God and say, God, I I thought bringing the presence and what you, Lord, speak to me. What is it? He had to work this out. And guess what he did? He goes to the Word. <laughs> that will help. That, that's awesome. David had all the right actions to move the ark, but the wrong method to moving the ark. So let's pick up. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 7. And let's, let's look at, remember now, the Word has been... Saul had almost no desire. He's consulting. When King Saul was in place, he's consulting with witchcraft, the witch of Endor. He has no desire for the presence, never even thought about capturing back from the Philistines the ark of the presence. He gets off in all of his pride and his jealousy. He undermines the process of God, and God takes him and his children out. But then we find David goes and looks at the Word. So let's turn to Numbers chapter 7 and look at verse 9. But he gave none of the wagons or oxen to the Kohathite division since they were required to carry the sacred objects of the tabernacle on their shoulders. Go back to chapter 4 of Numbers. You'll see again, there is very, very specific direction at that time on how the sacred objects 
of the tabernacle are to be moved. You remember, every time the cloud or the fire moved, they're, they're packing up, right? Getting all the gang. And so how do you take down? Remember we had the tabernacle all set up here so beautifully? Can you imagine the detail? How do you pack all that up and follow the cloud? And, the, and there, there's a detailed problem, and it's laid out here. It's one of those chapters like, whew, let's go past that one, right? But in chapter 4 of Numbers... The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, record the names of the members of the clan of the families of the Kohathite division of the tribe of Levi. Write their names down. List all the men's between 30 and 50. These are the duties of the Kohathites. They are part of the Levite tribe. It's interesting. And it goes on and it says, they put all the carrying poles in in verse 6. The poles of the altar in verse 11. The carrying poles in verse 14. There was a specific direction. And then he said in verse 15, tell the Kohathite they must not touch the sacred objects or they will die. So these are the things of the tabernacle that the Kohathites must carry. He goes on verse 19, he says, this is what you must do so that they will live and not die as they approach the most sacred objects. Now I know this is Old Testament, but the principle is very clear to us. There was directions from the word and God watches out for his word I I believe in my heart he was care he cared about Uzzah and he cared about David he cared about the presence but you need to know this word principally so you don't violate the word and get yourself sideways with God and so that is a message where the fear of the Lord we see this in Proverbs the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom David had fear I'm sure he went like Man, I am, I am all messed up now. I don't, he got alone with God. And he said, so what? And I'm sure the Levite priest gave Remember what he told Moses. Yes, the ark's been not in our presence for years and years. But God still is in the presence. And he still requires that the presence of God be carried on the shoulders of the priesthood. And so this is where we end up seeing that God is like, I'm very specific in these things. Now turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. So David gets mustered back up and says, I still know now that we're to bring the ark of the presence. He, well, the timing is now, but now we need to do it the way God said do it. Preparing them to remove the, of the presence later. In 1 Chronicles 15 it says, Now David built several buildings. Verse 1. In the city of David, he prepares a place for the ark. He sets up a special tent. He commands. Now listen to this. Now David commands. He's not talking to the army anymore. No one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and serve him forever. Then he lists the, again, the first listing there is the Kohathites. That's interesting later. I may mention this, but that particular group, that was the same. Let me mention it now. That is the same clan in number 16. The prominent leaders, the Kohathites, you remember the story of Korah. I don't know if you recall. Korah was one of the 250 prominent leaders, probably selected by Moses, who leads a rebellion against Moses. 250 of them and their families perish because of their rebellion. It's written again in the book of Jude. Jude, Jesus' half-brother, says, I wish I could tell you about the things of the salvation, but i got to tell you now, there is evil that has come in the church, and there are three spirits he calls out in the book of Jude, and one of them is the spirit of rebellion in Korah. The other one is the jealous brother under Cain, and the other one is the spirit of witchcraft. He says, they're coming into the church to tear the church apart. 
And he warns them, that is the same group that is here as a Levite clan. These are the errant priests who get off track. And so he tells them, this is the way we're going to do it. And then I like what he says, purify yourselves. Verse 12, he says to them, this is in 1 Chronicles 15, 12, you must purify yourself and your fellow Levites so when you bring the ark of the Lord, the Lord of Israel, to the place that we have prepared, I have prepared for it, because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. Man, that, just get a hold of that. Sometimes we get so wound up, we got to get aside and say, Lord, what do you say? How, when? He may reveal the why. So what did they do? They purified themselves. I'm sure they were like, um, they probably weren't a lot of volunteers maybe to carry it. Do you know what happened to Uzzah last time? It's that thing when you go on mission trips, you're about ready to do. Man, we take communion every day. We're like, oh, God, if there's anything I have to Because you know we need the presence of God and the cleansing, purification. So we see this now. This move of the presence, and it's so, it's so incredible, that whole move that happens at that point. The musicians and the oxen and, oh, my goodness, and it is going on. Well, we know this is a famous scripture that's often shared in verse 25. David and the elders of Israel, when they didn't die and they started moving, it's like, yay, yay, right? So now it's like they're going every few steps and they're slaughtering and declaring the works. Of, I mean, there, there was a lot going on that day. It says, and because, verse 26, and because God was clearly helping the Levites as they carried the ark of the Lord's covenant, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David, dressed in his fine linen, where all the Levites carried the ark, he was singing, and the choir leaders, and David was wearing his priestly garment. That's interesting. The king and the priest out of Revelation, which we are now. So all Israel brought the ark of the covenant with the shouts of joy, the blowing of the horns, the trumpets, the crashing of the cymbals, the playing of the alarm, the harps and the lyres. But the ark of the Lord's covenant entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, Remember, that's given to him when he killed Goliath. Saul's daughter, married to David, she looked down from the window. She was not celebrating the presence coming in. When she saw the king strip, skipping about and laughing with joy, she was filled with contempt for him. I don't want to unpack this now as part of that, but I do want to say that contempt for worship Extreme worship looks to be extreme foolishness to those who stand at a distance. Let me say it again. Extreme worship looks to be extreme foolishness to those who stand at a distance. The day I walked in here in 1993 in my three-piece suit coming from another church that didn't believe in all this stuff, and I walked in there and I, got, I told my wife, I said, whoa, we're getting out of here. And, of course, as a good wife, Tom, sit down and be quiet. You'll be fine. And I did. And next week, I came back without my three-piece suit. But I'll tell you what. There was a part of me, because the guy who was preaching that day was, was a guy named, um, he was a biker. Aligar, I think his name is. He's in heaven now. Ponytail. He had a T-shirt on, cut off. God rules. And I'm like, oh, no. 
That's not what I looked at when I went to seminary. That, that doesn't look like it. But I could tell you he preached the word that day, and I felt it. I could feel the, I could feel the presence of him. And so at that point, this is where you be careful about the content. That doesn't look like God to me. I've never done it that way. Be really, really careful. Contempt for worship, especially when someone is dancing with all their might. It may not look like you would do it. All right, moving right along. When we lack passion, this is a text that Ron sent this morning, and it just, I had just written this in my notes the morning before, and it said, like, it was the, and then he sends it. It's like, contempt for worship leaves us barren. It's exactly what happened to, to Michael, his wife. She tried to have children, and she was unable. From that point on, she was barren. Her barrenness for the presence of God and for the worship of God and the contempt that she brought in her house to her husband brought barrenness to her naturally. Be careful that the presence of God is contempted in the worship because we can become barren in the way we operate. So when we go, let's turn to this one. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5, in the ongoing discussion of the presence, I want to try to pick up and, and balance this. You know, God seems to allow His presence or His revelation of His presence to the pagans and the unbelievers. He gives them a lot more grace for a season. But we who are walking with Him, He holds us to what we should know. And so, look at what happens here. It's, it's actually a humorous story. It wasn't humorous for the poor guys that had brought him into Dagon's temple and all that. So when you look at that in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the ark, right now, if we pick up in chapter 4, again, I don't have time to unpack this. You had a, you had a priest who was off with the Lord. The Lord had warned him. He didn't do anything. His sons are immoral, Hophni and Phinehas. They're stealing from the church. They're having immorality with the church members. And the Lord warned him, and he chose not to do it. And I believe that's one of the foundational scriptures. If you love your family more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. He warned Eli, and Eli did not respond. Eli dies. Hophni and Phinehas dies. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. In verse chapter 4, 21 says, that's where the glory of the Lord left Israel at that point. The ark is then captured by the Philistines in chapter 5. They bring him into Dagon's temple. He falls on his face. He's broken. They say, we've got to get this presence of God out of here. The pagans say, we can't, we can't have this here. Verse, four, verse 5, look what happens. That day, they decided, let's get the ark of the presence out of Dagon's temple. Verse 6, the Lord's heavy hand has struck the people of Ashad and the nearby villages with a plague of tumors. I want to be graphic, but I don't know how any other say way to do it. What you find out when you do the translation of this, they get struck with hemorrhoids and with rats. Their house gets overrun with rats, and they get a pain in the butt. And it goes to all the surrounding villages. Now, that'll get your attention. And they know it's related to the fact we have the presence. We're not really authorized to have the presence. We just wanted to have him brought into our temple and bow down to our idols. And God said, I'm not having any of that. In fact, 
I'm going to make it so you understand that I don't want to be with you. And so what it has is, the King James calls them emeralds, you know. But if you look them up, they're, they're believed to be hemorrhoids. It says, they were struck all of the local area to the point, verse 11, the people summoned the leaders together and begged them, please send the ark of God, Israel, back to them. They're going to kill us. We've had deadly plagues from God. Great fear is sweeping across this country, the towns. They didn't want to die. They didn't want to be afflicted anymore with tumors, and they cried for the, to rose up to go to heaven. They decide, okay, let's send the ark back. Chapter 6. Send the ark of God back to Israel, but we got to send them a gift. <laughs> Again, this is, I think, humorous. Well, what kind of gift do we send with the ark to give them back their presence? They decide to fashion five golden hemorrhoids and five golden rats. I don't know how you fashion a hemorrhoid. Uh, but I, anyway, I'm just reporting, okay? There's, they decide, and they were told, since the plague has struck us, both the five rulers... We should give five gold tumors and five gold rats, just like those that have ravaged our land. Make these things to show honor to the God of Israel. Wow. That's, wow. I just all I can say is wow. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord and his chest containing the gold rats and the gold tumors were placed on the cart. And sure enough, what they do is they place it on a cart, not on the shoulders because they don't have any royal priesthood. They don't send for the Levites, so they load it on a cart, just like Uzzah had, and they said, here, this will be a test. Let's load the rats and the tumor gold stuff on top, and if the cow goes to Israel, we'll know we, we heard the Lord. So sure enough, they let the cow go, and guess what? Carries the ark right to Israel with all the gold and everything with it. I don't know what the Levites did when, like, wow, what do we do with that? It doesn't say. I don't believe it went into the temple. It might have got melted down. I don't know. It just, but here again, we pick up the, as the ark then moves to Israel. Guess what? Here's where the word kicks in again. Verse 19. But the Lord killed 70 men in Beth Shemesh because when the ark got there, they opened up the ark and they looked in it, which is in violation again of the word. Do you see he, was, he gave a lot of grace to the pagans? He does not give the people who are supposed to know the truth. As much grace. We're to know the word. We're to obey the word. We're to have the fear of the Lord of the word. And so there's this, as we as a body of believers, we go to Raleigh, we go around the world, we go and we ask for the presence of God. It would do us well to really reflect on God. What do you say? How do you want us to do this? What's the strategy of this? We don't always do it the same way. We, we have to ask the Lord. David didn't fight his battles the same way. He asked the Lord. So you might say, well, Pastor, what does this have to do with me today? What's the application? So in these closing 10 minutes, pick up your, your outline, and let me try to land this thing from an application's point of view for us. The top of the paragraph says, God will not rest or ride on anything Man makes for his own glory. God's presence is carried on the shoulders of those in relationship with him that embraces ways. These are the priests of the family that are his living stones, part of the holy nation who seek to be his royal priesthood.
Now, I've cherry-picked out of there from First Peter 2 about being a holy nation. We've preached this before, but you know, biblically, and we'll look at Peter in a minute, that in the New Testament, as soon as Christ has been resurrected and the kingdom of God had come and the outpouring of His presence came in in Acts chapter 2, those who now receive Him as Lord and Savior, you are clearly marked and you have become a living stone and you are part of a royal priesthood and a holy nation of priests. When I was writing this down, I was like, These two questions came, and I've listed them there. And number three, it says, so how is your living stone doing? The one that, when Pat was typing this for me, the one that really stuck out in her is, how holy is your priesthood? Let's just sail on that for a minute. Whether you believe you're a priest or part of a living stone of the temple of God formed together. What did he tell us in Romans? Know you not that you are a temple of the living God? A holy priesthood in First Peter 2. Whether you feel like a priest or acting like a priest, you're held to be accountable as a priest. And so the question for all of us is not by works righteousness and not by fear of He's going to go punish me because, because we know grace is always at His center first. Grace is always first. But how holy is the priesthood? So turn with me, and we'll, we'll probably end on this scripture. Turn back to 1 Peter, and we'll pick up in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, and we'll begin in verse 13. This is written shortly before Peter is actually martyred. He's had several years to marinate in all that's taken place. He's now been involved in so much of the move of God after the presence had come. Jesus has been resurrected, ascended. He's raised his, laid his hands on the, on the dead, and they've been raised from the dead. Cripples, lame, demonized. So he's a mature man now of God. He's, I believe he's no longer the foot-and-mouth guy that seemed to always get himself in trouble. And he writes this to the church, verse 13, 1 Peter 1.13. It's called, my, my Bible titles this, A Call to Holy Living. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. King James says, don't slip back into your formal lusts of your ignorance. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. 
He will judge or reward according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as a ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Through Christ, you have come to trust God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave great glory. You are, were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now, you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love others deeply with your heart, with all your heart. For you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God, as the scripture says. People are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and fades, and the word of the Lord remains forever. But that word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. So, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all the deceit, the hypocrisy, the jealousy, the unkind speech. And like newborn babies, crave the pure spiritual milk so that you'll be able to grow in full experience of salvation. King James says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Cry out for this nourishment. Now that you have a taste of the Lord's kindness, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he has, was chosen by God for great honor. Verse 5, and you are. Not will be when I get there. Were, no, you are living stones. I, I see this like a temple wall that all the stonework of God, the fashioned work, just who you are. You've got certain increases and delicacies and all the things that make up your personality, and God fits you right into that wall. That's the temple of the living God. No one else can fit that stone. Stop trying to be somebody you're not. He says, you are a living stone, fit into his building, which is the spiritual temple. And he goes on, and what's more, you are his holy priests. Although the meditation, through the meditation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God, as the scriptures say. I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, the chosen of great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you trust him. Recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone the builders rejected, will, who has now become the cornerstone, he's the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. So they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you're not like that. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his very own possession. As a result, you can show others the kind, the goodness of God. 
He ends this chapter by saying, keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Be careful to live properly before and among unbelieving neighbors so that they can't accuse you for doing anything wrong. And they will see how honorable your behavior is and they will give honor to God who will judge the world. Let's, let's meditate for a minute. I, I, really, I really felt like The Lord wants us. Last week we came and we dealt with unforgiveness. I just felt like today I wanted to open up the altar. If there's an area of repentance, you know that David, he got on his face. He sought the word. He went counsel probably with the Levites. They looked up the Mosaic law for moving the presence. He got that because that, he changed the whole strategy and each of us has things in our lives that that humility, that repentance of the heart is just very attractive to God. We know He hates pride. He hates jealousy and arrogance, self-centered. And it was the word Richard Thornton gave this morning about that whole place of humility coming in His presence. And it, and it links with all of what we've been hearing the healing of the land conference, the, that jealousy of others and their positions and concerns and things about ethnic backgrounds and failures. God really just does not care about any of that stuff. He said, I'm going to have a tribe from every tongue and every nation. And I believe the thing that will separate here is an unrepentant heart where pride goes before our falls. So I just want to open the altar. I'm going to uh, ask of our worship team, we just come back quietly, maybe keys or guitar, and, and I just want to, where we sang that, here am I. Why don't we open up the altar, and if you have anything that's brought conviction, you've got a struggle that's going on, you failed in areas of your life where you've, you just feel any shame or guilt. The Lord doesn't want any of that. He's a God of great grace. So let's just close our eyes for a minute. I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to every heart that's here. I felt also to say that I often have run into people who have been believers for a long time, and, but they carry a shame and a guilt of something that's happened in their past, and they haven't been able to let that go. And The Lord wants to know, if you've repented, if you've confessed that as sin, then the blood of Jesus is more than enough. And that Romans 8-1 scripture becomes alive. It says... There is no condemning, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. He said in 1 John, if you'll confess that sin, He is faithful. You just have to confess it. He does the faithing. He is faithful to forgive us from all the unrighteousness. So I just want to open up the altar here. 
the Lord's dealing with you, we're not going to in any way call attention to any of that. Just, it's time to just do business with God. I, here I am, Lord. I, I need the I am to come in and heal me, correct me, teach me, train me, equip me. If I've gotten your word, strategy, timing of things out of line, I've tried to do it in my own flesh, this would be a really great time that I'm laying down the flesh of this, Lord, and I'm asking you to bring me revelation. He's faithful. I love how he ties it together. The whole pre-service time was just confirming, and then even this with the waterfall and the fire. They believe the Lord is saying, I'd like you to paddle closer to the fire and the water. It's unusual to see the fire and the water together, but he's both a consuming fire, but he's the river of God that brings life to the, from the throne that flows to every location. He wants us to go deeper, but it's really a choice. Will you paddle closer? So the altar's open. We're just going to kind of... Stay quiet and just let the Lord minister. If you have to leave, just slip out, pick up the children. And I pray now that the God of peace will bring the truth of that revelation to our hearts this morning. That we'll meditate on the word. It'll, it'll roll around this week. Lord, I don't want to manhandle any of your presence. In my house, in my car, in my quiet time. I honor the presence of God and I ask that you'd speak and bring that revelation to us. Because as a people, if we're going to move into a greater move of the sovereign presence of God for healing signs and wonders, we can't manhandle and fleshly do this. It has to be done by his presence. God bless you all. Thank you.